Lee is a thriller writer whose latest book, The Water's Dead, is New Zealand's answer to Vera Stanhope. It's a thriller with surprise twists. Welcome to the joys of binge reading, the show for anyone who ever got to the end of a great book and wanted to read the next instalment. We interview successful series authors and recommend the best in mystery, suspense, historical and romance series. So you'll never be without a book you can't put down. You'll find this episode's show notes, a free ebook, and lots more information at thejoysofbingereading.com. And now, here's our show. Hi there, I'm your host, Jenny Wheeler, and on Binge Reading Today, Catherine talks about her new character, Detective Inspector Nairi Bradshaw, and her race against time to solve a murder where everyone has something to hide and no one is telling the truth. If she fails, it's likely a child dies. It's the first in a new series. As usual, we've got free books to give away, this time from Amazon best-selling author Sylvia Price, who writes women's fiction and sweetheart romance. Links for accessing the free book offer can be found on the website in the show notes for this episode at thejoysofbingereading.com or on our Binge Reading Facebook page. And don't forget, you can get exclusive bonus content like hearing Catherine's answers to the five quickfire questions by becoming a Binge Reading on Patreon supporter for the cost of less than a cup of coffee a month. It would be great to have a few more people on board supporting the show with the weekly costs. But now, here's Catherine. Hello there, Catherine, and welcome to the show. It's great to have you with us. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's great to be there with you. And it's it's a wonderful, almost a novelty to have a fellow New Zealander. I don't I don't d- deliberately choose or not choose Kiwis. I just choose people who fit the you know the books we're doing. But it's lovely to have somebody who's writing those books in New Zealand. Oh, thank you, and that's why I decided to write the books in New Zealand. I've got some set in the States and, excuse me, when I started writing, I put my first book out in 2013 and somebody said, oh, don't set them in New Zealand, for goodness sake, nobody will ever read them. Set them in the States. And so that's what I did. And, of course, then the process began. I decided to set a political, politically-based thriller. And... um, Boy, their politics are quite different to ours. There was such a lot of research. But, yeah, and and now I've just decided, I thought, you know what, I know far more about New Zealand. We have got such an amazing country, such diverse cultures, such, you know, so much flavour, so much, you know, brilliance, and, and, and the country is so beautiful. Why not set them here? Yes, yes. That, that, that's fabulous. Just to backtrack a bit, you do write thrillers with heart, as your website says, and you have done several international page turners. Yes. And we'll get we'll get to those a little later on because they are worth talking about. But your latest book, the one we're kind of focusing on because it's just come out, is yes. called The Water's Dead. And it's a police procedural set in the far north of New Zealand where you live. Now that is a bit of a change for you. And it's good to kind of get in right at the beginning and talk a little bit about why you made that. Was it different writing a psychological thriller to a police procedural? Yes, it is a lot different because you're looking at your main character coming at a crime from a different angle. 
And I had to do a lot of research on police procedure in New Zealand because it's actually quite different to procedure overseas in in very subtle ways. And we think that the police just, you know, do this job and get out there and drag in suspects. And But the amount of background work that goes on that you never ever get to see is just amazing. And it's, but it's like that thing, if you wrote a real police procedural, and I think most police would agree with this, is it would be absolutely boring because they put so much work in that we never see. Yeah, so much need to kind of follow procedure and, and make yep. sure, yeah, 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 yeah. But whereas when you've got a, a kind of an amateur sleuth, they can make up their own rules. They can do whatever they want. Yes. But they're not a party to a lot of the information that, for example, that the police have. Yes. So it's how you approach the, the story and it's got to be, it's got to hit all those notes and have something to say. Yes, yes. Look, it's been described as a New Zealand version of Vera Stanhope, and that's referring to Anne Cleves' best-selling British crime series, the popular yes. TV show Vera. Yes. Was Anne Cleves any sort of inspiration to you, or is that just a serendipity that happened when somebody thought, oh, gosh, this is like Vera? I did think that, and that's why I thought, gosh, you know, this is kind of like Vera in, in New Zealand. But it's I was so influenced by not just Anne Cleves, but by all the great British, you know, writers, Ruth Rendell. I've been re- reading those for years, you know, Colin Dexter, and they're all police procedures, or oh, a lot of them are police procedurals, and I love that, but I love a lot of the American writers as well. But it's just that this one, I thought, you know what, this is... This could be likened to Anne Cleves because I want to get that small town feel and the police dealing with all kinds of people and bring in the feeling of the towns. Now, your central character is a detective inspector called Nairi Bradshaw, and she's a battle-hardened cop. She's experienced. She's working in a beautiful but impoverished region of New Zealand. Now, even that picture of New Zealand might clash a bit with people's um, general touristy ideas of New Zealand because it's a part of New Zealand that the tourists probably wouldn't ever see, even though I'm uh, correcting that because, of course, you do have a couple of tourists who find a body, but they still don't, they're not really part of the community. They're just passing through. Yeah. Why did you choose this kind of aspect of New Zealand to, to make as the background for it? It was a hard decision. Because I've got to be honest, when I started writing it, I thought, oh, do I want my overseas readers to see that part of New Zealand? Because, you know, we're clean, we're green, it's beautiful, the people are lovely. But it's really not a realistic picture of New Zealand. That, as you say, it's the tourist idea of New Zealand. And so I really wanted to get the real real New Zealand. I wanted New Zealanders to recognise themselves and their towns and a lot of the towns kind of go back in in his you know in time a little bit so they're not quite up with they haven't got traffic lights (laughs) 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 they're they've got all those the small towns have got that community that the big cities don't have and I just really wanted to bring that in and not just say this one's, you know, I mean, just an example. I went over to a small town not long ago 
And next thing we had the tribesmen come in, all on their motorbikes, all racing in. And I thought, oh, my goodness, I have to. They were waiting in line at a fish and chip shop. And I thought, oh, my God, I have to cut through the line. And so there was this young man patched up, tattoos. And I said, excuse me, can I get past? And he said, oh, sorry, ma'am, you know, sorry. And, and I thought that is an aspect of some of the people you don't, you don't get. You know, there's good, there's bad. And I just wanted to give that feel of these are all people in a community. Yes. The tribesmen for people who aren't so familiar with some of the local scenes is that there are, there's a gang scene in New yeah. Zealand, particularly, well, in rural and urban areas yes. that attract the underprivileged young men into a That's kind right. of family environment. So the tribesmen mm-hmm. are one of those. And this community that you deal with in The Water's Dead, there's a strong mm-hmm. Maori element to it. There's a Maori community who yes. are unfortunately in many rural areas the, the poorest of yeah. the people living there. And they've got all the vices and wants that poverty and lack and opportunity present. And, and mm-hmm. that... So how did you even get into that kind of world yourself? I mean, I know that you're living in the town of Kerikeri up north, but yes. Kerikeri actually is probably the most white middle-class town oh. in all of Northland, isn't it? Oh, yes. But, you know, there are small towns. You don't just stay in Kerikeri. You go around, you look at the small towns. I love talking to people, finding out about other people, you know, the Māori culture, I've, I've worked with Māori up here who come from the small towns to work in Kerikeri and they're the loveliest people and, you know, they'll tell me stories and tell me about the person down the road and, think, you know, so you do, if you, if you want to hear it, it's there and, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. you can absorb what's going on around the country. If you're interested, you need, you know, everybody knows that there's poverty up north but... You know, you need to know why it's there and the people it affects. And that's what I'm interested in too. Yes, yes. This is intended as the first book in a series. You've already said that it's a series, haven't yes. you? Um, so, and there's certain open things that are left regarding significant relationships in Nairi's life, which we won't yes. do a spoiler by spelling that out too clearly, but... I wondered if you're already working on book two. And do you have a big story arc that you're already working to? You do. It's a big story arc that will go along the series. And it's very much in, involved with that relationship yes. that mm-hmm. you spoke about. So that is certainly brought to the fore in the next book. And when are you expecting for that to be out? Is it? I don't know. I just, <laughs> I lay in bed last night and I've put the book in a setting and I woke up and I, because I'm about quarter of the way through and I thought, no, it's not right. I've got to rip out the setting. I've got to set it somewhere else. I've got to take out some of the characters, put in some other characters, change a few. So that's probably about half the book of <laughs> what I've written gone. So, but it's not going to be right. I know it's not going to be right because I want to, it's ended up feeling a little bit like Auckland or even Kitty Kitty. And I don't want that. I want it to be small town. So it's going to it's going to have some doctoring. Yes. But that's what happens. Even in this 
first book, there's a lot of characters because when you're investigating a crime like this, there are people who appear as potential either suspects or witnesses and then they fade out again. The, the police have to deal with a lot of people who may not have a major role. Do you have a kind of Bible that you keep of all those characters and all their names and that kind of thing? No, I don't. I'm absolutely hopeless. I need to do that because I actually end up having to thinking, oh my goodness, what was that character's name? Oh, I'll go just go back into the manuscript and have a look. So I need to do that. I'm a terribly lazy writer. Also, I think I, I feel myself, we, we're, we're drawn to certain names without even knowing why you know there are certain names that probably resonate with us and I find myself that for these very secondary characters you think oh I'll call him you know Bill and then you think oh no hang on a minute didn't I have a Bill so and so is that going to be confusing for the reader you know so that some of these people who don't have very big parts still can get confusing if you choose similar names can't they right that's exactly right yeah I so wondered I... with you know with Nyre spelt N-Y-R-E-E mm-hmm I wondered if that was a little play on our very well-known. Yes, it is. Tell us about that. Nairi Dawn Porter, fabulous, you know, and and largely I think forgotten in New Zealand. And I, I thought I want some background for my Nairi. And I thought, you know what, what if her mother was a huge fan of Nairi Dawn Porter? And so that's what it, the reason I've done that. And I love the name, it, although Nairi is European, she's Pākehā. Yes. Um, it, but she's working in this area and, you know, just working with Māori detectives and Māori suspects and, you know, and Pākehā as well. So, you know, I just really wanted that mix going on. Yes. Now, because 60% of our audience is actually overseas, so just expand a little bit on who Nairi Dawn Porter was. She was an actress quite a few years ago, and she actually, her name was Nairi, which is uh, a Maori name, which is N-G-A-I-R-I-E. I can't remember. It, it, just spelling it, I can type it, it yes. instantly. I don't think there's an I in the end. It's Nairi R-E, I think, yeah. Right. Yeah. And I was originally going to call her Nairi with that spelling, and I asked one of my American, and this is exactly what happened to Nairi Dawn Porter, I asked one of my American readers, I said, what do you think at the beginning of the book? And she said, oh, it's great, I really like it. I said, how do you pronounce her name? She said, oh, it's Nagir. And I thought, no, that's not going to work. <laughs> so I, th- I thought, you know what, I'm going to have her a Pākehā, whose mother was a, a fan of Nairi Dawn Porter, and she is going to have that same name. There also is another funny link, and that's with Nio Marsh. Yes. I wondered whether there was that, that as well, but Nio Marsh was a really well-known New Zealand mystery writer. Oh, absolutely, writer. yes. Yeah. yeah. Internationally known, so, yeah. yeah. We're taking a short break. We'll be back with Catherine as soon as we can. Sadie's Vow is a new historical mystery with a heart of romance. Jeannie Wheeler's latest book, set in 1870s California and published later this month. It's on pre-order now at a special launch price at all of the usual e-book stores. 
a deathbed promise, an impossible task, will saving a loved one mean losing everything? It's the first in a new series called Home at Last. It's got the same engrossing characters, twisty suspense and vivid settings that have become a hallmark of Jenny's work. Pre-order it today and don't miss out. And now we're back with Catherine Lee. Look, um, we've mentioned your international thrillers and I read The Candidate's Daughter and I loved it. I mean, I love American political stories anyway, so I was probably a good candidate. But it's called the Elizabeth McLean series and there are three books, I think, in that series as well. And in this story, Elizabeth McLean is the wife of a Senate candidate whose child is kidnapped just as they're coming up to an election Uh And she turns into an amateur investigator because she gets frustrated about the lack of progress or what she sees as the lack of progress in finding her daughter. You seem to have quite a a soft spot for children. Children appear in a number of your books. They included In the Water's Dead. There is a child involved as well. And I wondered if that seems to be quite deliberate because it's in a lot of your books. Yes. What does it bring to the story, do you feel? In The Candidate's Daughter, that was my first thriller out. And I had a disabled daughter um, who passed away in 2014 and I cared for her. And that's a long story. I've actually written a memoir, which I will edit at some stage. And I wanted to bring to the fore the mixed feelings of a parent with a disabled child. And when I had my daughter, that was in 1981, and I can remember people crossing the street so that they wouldn't have to talk to me. And so there, and there was a huge stigma at that time. And and it's not, I to me, having a child with disabilities is still tough, you know. So I wanted to point, I wanted to have my my child that's kidnapped as a child with disabilities so that you could see that the struggle of the mother, and I hadn't deliberately put the kidnapper in there, but she kind of popped up. I write just as it comes. I don't plot. So when Kelsey turned up and she had this amazing relationship with the child, and I just kept running with that, and I thought this is what Elizabeth, the main character, wants but can't seem to achieve until she realises the value of her daughter all the way through. And I guess that's kind of a little bit of a journey I went through. It was so tough in the early days. And when my daughter came home to live, because she'd been in care for, or shared care for a while while I worked and tried to, you know, make something of myself. And eventually when she came home, I realised what I'd been missing by not having her at home. And so it's that story I wanted to to put through the and and also the child in the second book, Child of State. The child in that story is also disabled. So I wanted a theme of disability going through. But when I started this series, I thought, I don't know why I had the young woman in the pool. And then I thought, what if she was looking after a child when she was murdered? And so that's where that came from. It wasn't, I didn't think, oh, what's going to make this really good? But that just sort of popped in. 
Yes, yeah. yes. Look, it's interesting in the candidate's daughter. I'm, I'm not at all surprised you did have that backstory, although I didn't know anything about it, because the feeling of understanding with that mother is so strong in it. She's got a real sense of guilt and failure about the fact that she didn't manage to produce a beautiful child. And they're quite you know, upper class, and they've got absolutely everything else in the world. And she feels as if she hasn't delivered on her part of the bargain as the candidate's wife, you know, and and it comes through. And then, as you say, she after her daughter is goes missing, she then starts to understand how she really didn't know very much about her daughter at all, even though she lived in the same house because she paid for somebody else to care for her. And she actually held her at arm's length, emotionally speaking, just Mm. because she couldn't really almost face her own failure. So that came through in a very um, touching way in the story. It really did. Oh, thank you. Mm. Mm. You also write under another pen name of C.J. Lee, and I wondered how that happened. I mean, because they look like they're fairly similar books. Um, That's about a serial killer. And I actually, oh, is it? Oh, <laughs> yes, yes. And I love the book. I just don't know whether it resonated terribly well with readers. Some of the some readers loved it, um, but it, the main character is Raymond. Um, he's in a wheelchair and he's a psychopath, and he makes his living. I know this sounds. It. I just loved it. He makes his living at, and it was quite feasible at the time by. Um, entering competitions and selling off the proceeds but he wasn't he wasn't you know too proud to go and actually if somebody else had won the prize like a you know something expensive to go and kill them and, and sell their prize <laughs> online <laughs> so he was he's ruthless he's a psychopath and then he discovers a 10 million dollar treasure hunt and he decides to go into it and then discovers he's not the only psychopathic killer in the in the competition, so that uh, that was a lot of fun, but it's quite brutal. So, okay, <laughs> I thought I better distance my my other writing from that. And yes, and the can the you know the Elizabeth McLean books sold better. I loved the first one, but they sold better. And you know, there's no point in in carrying on a series if. Is nobody's interested in it. Yes. So that's why I started that yeah. one. Look, we'll just turn away a little bit from talking about specific books to a little bit about your wider career. What drew you into writing and what did you do before you actually became this, quotes full-time writer that you are now? I worked in recruitment and I worked in the IT industry. I'm not an IT person, but I worked in sales. And for a short while, I worked for Barry Coleman when he had the internet. He'd invested in some international satellite capacity. And so I ended up working for him and selling the the transponder space. While I was there, it was only, only a tiny, it was basically three of us in the company. So he put us into the NBR offices of the National Business Review and I got to talk to journalists and people of words and writers, and it was just, it was lovely being around them. And so I did a, a creative writing course, and one of my my dear friends, uh, Deborah, who was an editor there, she said, oh, you've got some talent. No, this is really good. You've got talent. It really wasn't. I mean, it was rubbish, but it was fairly well-written rubbish. 
<laughs> so, and I think that's how most writers start out. They, they've usually got a few books under their belt that will never see the light of day. But it gave me the feeling that I could do something and I could achieve something. Yes. So I've been doing it ever since. Fantastic. And how long is that? Uh, that's the mid to late 90s. Uh-huh, yeah. Yeah, so I've been yeah. writing since yeah. then. Look, we like to talk about your taste in books as well because this is the joys of binge reading. We like to give readers recommendations for things they might like apart from yeah. your books. And and we do tend to fo- we focus very much actually on the popular genre fiction end of the publishing world. But what do you like to read? I imagine you have always been a big reader probably, but yes. even in the past or now, what are some of your favourites? The Dry by Jane Harper. Oh, yes, yeah. I was overseas with my sister and I saw it in a book in the airport bookstore and I started reading it. And after a while, she'd go, What are you doing? Are you still reading that book? And I'd, I'd have it down here. No, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> so I love Jane Harper. Chris Hammer. I read oh, his yes. Rublands. That was brilliant. I yep. absolutely loved that. We've had Chris oh, on the show. Yes, I know. (laughs) I know. And I absolutely love that. He's just so good at, and the two of them, you know, that's what I really loved is how they gave the the place was actually a character. Yes. Sense of place was actually a character in the book. Yeah. Excuse me. Loved Morse. Oh, yes. Never forgave him when he killed Morse. Hope that's not a spoiler for anyone. Um, It happened quite a while ago now. <laughs> oh, yeah, it did. It did. Another of my favourites, funnily enough, was one by, was an author that my mother loved and I used to oh, mum, but it was Ed McBain. Oh, yes. I just loved him. And, of course, his, years ago, his 87th precinct was the, was behind the Hill Street Blues series. That's what it was based on, was Ed McBain's stories. And I just loved them. And that's one of the things I wanted in this book, was not just have one main character, but I wanted the reader to slowly, I want them to get to know the team. Yeah. Yeah. And so I will keep the same team together as much as possible so that they get to know the other characters as well, the other investigators and detectives. But so of them you've knocked out already. I know. <laughs> Not giving anything away, but it was a great twist at the end, I must say. <laughs> oh, thank you. Um, and I thought, oh, you know, I would just love that. It's the sense of community with within the team as well. Yes. So yeah. that's what I wanted yeah. to to yeah. keep. Yeah. Look, looking back down the tunnel of time. If there was one thing about your creative career that you'd change, what would it be? I'd write faster. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's the only thing I think I'd change. You really, really need to write to learn to write. Yes. Um, yeah. And I know that a lot of people want to put out their first book and have a bestseller, and some people do, and I think that's fantastic. But Honestly, you you know, now after writing so many books, you know where the beats are and the pinch points and the, you know, the arc is going and, and it, where the crescendo is and 
you know, when you've got to tie up all those loose ends. And that's the fun of writing the book is, is taking the reader along on that journey. But it takes a lot of time to learn to do that. Or maybe I'm just a slow learner. I don't know. But No, I agree. It's, I think it's like the old Malcolm Gladwell thing of yep. 10,000 hours and however you put yep. them in, it, you do. You do yeah, get... unless you're Ben Saunders. Yes, yeah. <laughs> what is next for Catherine as author when you look over the next 12 months what do you have coming up in terms of your writing the second in this book this series yes the second book and it's important that I get this really right I think the first one I was that was a mission to write but I think the time I took bedded down the type of book I want to write Yes. So I'm hoping to get this next one um, out within the year. Boy, I really am hoping to get it out within the, and carry on the series. I've also got others that, I, you know, I've put on the back burner. One is I've got a, a girls series of mysteries, but it's, it's kind of girls from the age of nine to 99. I call them the mysteries of Mosey Blaine. And I've started a rewrite on it and I thought you know I it's a comedy it's humorous and it's about two girls who are complete nerds solving mysteries at their school where nobody knows them you know but it's incorporating all those typical characters you get at school the gossips the meanies the ducks that you know <laughs> and I really would like to to bring that out because it, it's just a fun ride Yes. But I've just got to not take on too much. Now, do you enjoy interacting with your readers and where can they find you online? They can find me on Facebook and I love interacting with readers. They can message me through my website at authorcatherinelee.com. I will, I'm planning on doing a few road trips around New Zealand, popping into stores doing some book signings, doing some just, and I love meeting people and hearing about what they like to read and, it, you know, just meeting people who have the same interests as me. Yes. Mm. Well, that's lovely. We'll have all those links in the show notes for the episode so people will be able to find them online as well. Oh, great. Yeah, and Twitter as well. I've okay. just yeah. re relaunched my, well, not relaunched, but reignited my Twitter. And I want to have a little bit more interaction with Twitter. So, yeah. Well, that's excellent, Catherine. That really is. Look, it's been wonderful talking. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Next week on Binge Reading, we have Regency Romance Queen, Stephanie Lawrence. She's won the Top 100 Romance of the Year book many times over, one of the most successful and popular novelists of our time, with over 70 works of historical romance, including 40 New York Times bestsellers. That's Stephanie next week on The Joys of Binge Reading. That's it for today. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so you can be sure you don't miss out on future episodes, including Stephanie next week. And a reminder, we rely on your support to keep the show going, so go that extra mile and check out Binge Reading on Patreon.